Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine interview with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. This week we've been talking to Matteo Petrone. He's the Managing Director for Eastern Europe and the Caucasus for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Now the EBRD was set up uh, after the collapse of communism to bring former communist countries uh, into Western markets and in the process to promote uh, democratic institutions. He's just come back from Lviv on a brief tour looking at the EBRD's operations there. They're going to be absolutely central in maintaining the economy of Ukraine at this moment, but also looking forward central to reconstruction plans. This is what he told us. Matteo, welcome to the podcast. You've just come back from Lviv. Can you tell us your impression of the mood there and how people are coping? Well, if I have to judge from uh, the interactions we have with the many companies we have met, we have mainly met private sector companies and obviously Lviv administration. But if I have to judge from the interaction we had from the companies we met, people are incredibly determined to see the end of the conflict and not being uh, derailed in their in their plans to grow their companies, expand them and ensure that the real economy of the country continues thriving, notwithstanding the current situation. But then you go and visit medical facilities, uh, the hospital of Lviv, and, uh, and you realize that the human cost of what is happening is huge. And, and that makes you wonder uh, even more how the resilience of the Ukrainian people in the current circumstances can be uh, supported uh, by stakeholders like us and other partners of Ukraine uh, in the international community. I noticed that you visited Unbroken, uh, which is a sort of holistic uh, caring centre for victims, casualties of the conflict, not just physical casualties, but also mental casualties. Can you tell us something about their work and what you saw there? Well, there are a number of actually of these initiatives. Unbroken is... Uh, is one of them and is a very uh, well-functioning one. And clearly there is a, a strong wish by the Lviv administration to ensure that uh, the casualties of the conflict, both military and, and uh, civil, are taken care of. And indeed, there is an holistic approach to that. And uh, we visited both the, the prosthetic center, the rehabilitation center, but also the post-trauma stress center, but what I think is to be considered also is the fact that other uh, initiatives are, are taking place, for instance, uh, Superhumans, which is a, a sort of PPP between uh, a number of uh, entrepreneurs. This initiative is led by one of the most prominent entrepreneurs in the country, 
Andrei Stamnitzer and in, in cooperation with the Minister of Healthcare. And they have the same sort of approach, uh, very holistic to, to the resolution and mitigation of uh, issues related to amputation and, and casualties in the, of the conflict. The fact that there are there is a proliferation of this initiative is a, a very sobering reminder of uh, of the need for uh, having facilities of this sort. There is an obvious reason why they are being set up in in Viv, but uh, going forward there will be need for more of that throughout the country. Unfortunately, Mateus, I noticed that the EBRD has spent or at least invested, $1.7 billion. And that was just in 2022 in Ukraine. Can you give us a sense of what sort of projects, you've, you've spoken of, about a few in Lviv, but countrywide, what this money is is being spent on? Yes, with pleasure. So just to give you a bit of background to that, we the, the EBRD has invested overall in Ukraine over about 30 years of activities there, uh, more than 18 billion uh, euros in uh, in more than 500 projects. In the three years before the conflict, we invested 3 billion euros and we entered into the conflict period with a portfolio of over 4 billion euros. And we had a plan for 2022 to continue investing in about 1 billion euro and uh, in a number of projects in the private sector and in the public sector. And obviously, on the 24th of February, everything changed. And uh, and we took the view that uh, we had to make sure we could support the real economy in the country. For a number of reasons, the main two are um, the fact that we needed the economy to keep going uh, to sustain the, the social cost of the conflict, the immediate social cost of the conflict, but also prospectively, the better shape uh, the, the economy would enter into the reconstruction phase, the lesser the cost of the reconstruction phase itself. So with that in mind, we pledged to invest 3 billion euros in the country in 2022 and 2023. And as you mentioned, we ended 2022 with a deployment of 1.7 billion euros plus another 200 million euros deployed alongside by our partner financial institutions. And we have focused on five areas, really. So supporting trade, both imports and exports, mainly imports of fuel and exports of, uh, of foodstuff, supporting energy security. And uh, we have supported Naftogaz, the gas company, to buy gas to cope with the winter, and uh, and Ukrainergo with a package of uh, over half a billion euros uh, for liquidity initially, and then also for emergency repairs after uh, the the beginning of the, the of the shelling intense shelling of uh, civilian infrastructure by the Russian Federation. And uh, in the infrastructure sector, we have supported the railway company Ukrasalisnitsa with uh, a liquidity line. So to support immediate operations, operational expenditures, and the city of Lviv itself. And then there is the entire chapter of uh, food security, where we have supported uh, companies in the private sector, either directly through loans to these companies or via loans to banks that would then on-lend to companies or to cover partially the risk of banks. And that is where we have these multiplier effects and the 200 million euros that I mentioned as an addition to our 1.7 billion. And finally, we started focusing uh, support on, uh, let's say, non-agricultural companies, on pharmaceutical companies, because at the beginning of the conflict, we thought that was the uh, most pressing urgent, urgent uh, sector. But then we widened our scope to 
um, bolstering the resilience of the private sector in general. And we invested in, uh, in the heavy industries, uh, for instance, um, steel, but also telecom companies, real estate. Uh, we even invested in, uh, in the fourth private equity fund of one of the most active private, private equity asset managers in the country. So is the economy still functioning then in, in a meaningful sense? Are they exporting goods? You mentioned agricultural products, but finished goods as well. Is, is that still sort of ticking along despite the, the terrible conditions they're operating under? Yes, it is. Of course, if you consider that the GDP has contracted by 30%, things are not rosy. Uh, however, the economy keeps going. And, and, and as you say, if you like, it's ticking along. There are a number of companies that uh, are are managing well. There are other companies that have even grown, particularly in the western part of the country. And uh, and there are companies that are not missing uh, the opportunity of a terrible crisis to reform themselves and uh, to expand abroad, to buy other companies abroad. One of the transactions we have closed this year is for uh, indeed a pharmaceutical company that has bought uh, a subsidiary in uh, Central Asia uh, to diversify its production activities. But there are also foreign investors that are willing to double down in, in Ukraine. One of the transactions we are working on currently is uh, is to support a foreign investor that is already present in the country that is willing to expand its production facilities there. Or there are local investors, local entrepreneurs, that indeed are expanding their production facilities both abroad and in the country itself. Now, I think the image people have of Ukraine before the war began was not a, an entirely positive one in the sense that uh, I think there was a feeling uh, that it there was ingrained corruption there, uh, a kind of quasi-Russian setup with oligarchs running this show. Um, you must be satisfied to some degree that the reforms that Zelensky uh, promised have actually begun and presumably are going to continue into the post-war era. Is that an accurate assessment of how you see things? I think that after Maidan, Ukraine has engaged in a reform agenda and a reform path which uh, has brought very significant positive results. It has not been by any stretch of imagination a, a linear trajectory. We had uh, a number of uh, blunders in, in the anti-corruption fight in the, in the corporate governance uh, area, but Overall, the reform of the economic ecosystem of Ukraine has been a positive one over the last eight to nine years now. And the reduction of space of corruption has happened. The reform of the banking system has happened. There are a number of areas where things have progressed well. Um, what the conflict has brought to surface is the willingness of the leadership to continue on that reform agenda. Um, but most importantly, in my view, is the importance of the civil society in the country, which has been thriving in the history of the, in the 30 years history of the country. And we wouldn't have had the Orange Revolution and then Maidan without the civil society that Ukraine has. I'm convinced that after the end of this conflict, the civil society will be the guardian of uh, further reform and strengthening of the democratic institutions in, uh, in Ukraine. Well, that was all very interesting. Join us in part two when we'll hear the rest of the interview with Matteo Petroni.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to our interview with Matteo Petrone of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. This is what he told us in the second part of the interview. Is it possible, Matteo, to begin the process of reconstruction before the war ends? We're getting a lot of questions on the podcast. You know, understandably, people are concerned about what's going to happen to Ukraine after the war. But is this a process that has actually already begun, at least as far as the EBRD is concerned? Well, to some extent, indeed, that that is something that has begun. And most of what we have done in 2022, and by the way, we had the, a strong support of, of bilateral donors because we couldn't take the entire risk of this 1.7 billion in our balance sheet. So we had the support of uh, the US, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, the Netherlands, uh, Norway, etc. But um, most of what we had done was provision of liquidity. But we also have started uh, financing, uh, for instance, emergency repairs, as I mentioned, for Ukrainergo. And uh, one trend that we are seeing going forward in 2023 is that our pipeline is building up more as, a, as an opportunity to finance uh, uh, investments than, uh, than operational expenditures. I think the area of um, of reconstruction is a very gray one in that sense. It's not gonna. There's, there's probably not going to be a discontinuity point. First of all, because the economy needs infrastructure now, we cannot wait for the peace to happen in order to have new auto transformers or new electricity generation capacity or or a functioning uh, a railway system. And secondly, because we don't know what kind of form peace would take could be a contained conflict, it could be a temporary or a, a truce, uh, that, uh, it could be actually a peace uh, treaty. We, we, we really don't know, and, and, and we cannot wait for that in order to, to consider financing new investments in the country. What parameters do you set on your reconstruction activities? Uh, is it just simply a matter of physically building back, or are you also looking at social issues like employment, uh, the trauma caused by war. Is that a big component in your plan? It is a big part. The the issue of human capital is really front and center of what we're trying to do in the country already now. 
And um, the sheer fact that we are investing in companies in the real economy uh, addresses somehow the issue of human capital. And, and we are also having uh, very constructive discussions and provision of technical assistance. We have a strong partnership with the Minister of Economy, the Minister of Digital Transformation, and the Minister of Education in, in addressing what we call labor market resilience, uh, translating, supporting uh, um, both the public sector and the private sector in absorption of the labor and internally displaced people and, and people that have been deeply affected by, by the war. The way we approach the issue of reconstruction or, or recovery of the Ukrainian economy is indeed a, an inclusive one, whereby we are going to focus our effort in supporting those companies that are able to absorb workforce both internally and absorb all those refugees that had to leave the country now that are willing to come back to Ukraine. So that is, is very much at the center of, of our activity. But we take the economic perspective of that. We don't do social programs for people affected by, by the conflict. Well, last question from me, Matteo. Uh, we're a history podcast, so we always try and bring in some historical perspective. Uh, this seems to me to be a very unusual, if not unique, situation. Nonetheless, there are kind of models in the 20th century that, that one can uh, perhaps make a comparison with. I'm thinking of the Marshall Plan, for example. Is there anything that you look at that you think has some significance or relevance to the problems that you're facing at the moment? Well, definitely the Marshall Plan is one of those things that we have been looking at. Uh, from our perspective, because we are really by, by mandate a bank that is focuses on, uh, on financing private sector investments, we are really looking at how, in particular in perspective, in, in, during the reconstruction phase, we can attract private sector investors in the country. As you know, there are a number of possible estimates on how the reconstruction phase, how much the reconstruction phase will cost. There is a, an estimate done by, by the World Bank uh, in September of uh, $350 billion. Actually, the Ukrainian authorities uh, indicated before that $750 billion. Some people believe that we are beyond the $1 trillion. All of these will not be achieved without a very strong role of the private sector. And, uh, and for that to happen, you need to create an ecosystem that actually is attractive for, for the private sector to come to the country. Somehow the Marshall Plan uh, was focusing on, on these aspects as well. And, and this is actually where we're going to focus our activities, including uh, when we invest in public sector uh, infrastructure or in supporting public sector uh, state-owned enterprises. The way we, we, we approach in those phases improving the governance of those companies, commercializing those companies, engage in, uh, in, of course, not now, but prospectically in pre-privatization processes in order to create a, a level playing field that would make uh, the business environment of Ukraine attractive for, in particular, for foreign investors, but also an environment where local entrepreneurs would thrive. And there we have the issue of, uh, of the de-oligarchization of the economy. You mentioned the oligarchs were running the show. Indeed, that was the case. And uh, and I think people like us and, and other institutions uh, like ours need to play a role to ensure that this is not going to be the case going forward. 
One last question for me, Matteo. We won't keep you long. Just really a question about Russia, the bank's relationship with Russia, the Russian authorities, and how uh, the last year, and indeed I know you've been involved in, as you say, in Ukraine for a long time before that, but how in particular has the full-scale invasion of Ukraine affected that relationship? So the relationship with Russia has changed already after the annexation of Crimea. We stopped investing in Russia since then. And uh, and we have started winding down our portfolio there. Uh, to give you a sense, in 2013, our portfolio in Russia was uh, about $8 billion uh, or euros now. And uh, at the, the end of last year was, was about 800 million. So a factor of 90% reduction. And we took immediately after the 24th of February, 2022, a very strong stance against the aggression. And our governors, our shareholders, then decided to activate the article of our bylaws that foresees that neither Russia nor Belarus may access our financial uh, support any further. And therefore, we are not active in Russia anymore. We are not active in Belarus anymore. We closed our offices. We evacuated our teams from there. All the ones that didn't want to be evacuated left the bank. Great. And Matteo, thanks so much for that. It was absolutely fascinating. All very interesting. I was pretty uh, stunned by that number that he came up with for one estimate of how much this is all going to cost at the end, one trillion euros. Where's that going to come from? Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, Patrick? He pointed out that, of course, a certain amounts going to come, are going to be publicly funded, but the majority is going to have to come from private finance, which is why the EBRD's work is so vital. I mean, the figure I was stunned by was 18 billion euros has already been spent by the bank in Ukraine, uh, admittedly over the last 30 years. So that's pretty much since the end of the Cold War, as you mentioned at the beginning, Patrick, but but they were really beginning to ramp up operations. And even during 2022, when conditions are obviously pretty tricky, uh, you know, they'd spent 1.7 billion euros, uh, the equivalent roughly to dollars, um, on uh, you know a wide array of projects, which we now see are absolutely vital, not just keeping the Ukrainian economy running, but also preparing for the future. Yeah, it does um, speak again about the resilience of the Ukrainian people, doesn't it? I mean, astonishing to think that uh, in the midst of all this, that some companies not just surviving, they're actually expanding their operations. Uh, and I think it, it does bode well for the future. Also interesting that they actually took a pretty strong line with Russia uh, from the outset, as long ago as 2014. They basically closed down operations, closed down the office which is in stark contrast to what you know, an awful lot of other companies in the West and uh, banks and all the rest of it uh, really waited till the last minute and beyond before they wave farewell to their very lucrative relationship with Russia. It's also very encouraging, I think, Patrick, when you, when we take the slightly longer view, as Matteo was explaining since 2014, to realise that these reforms that have been going on in the Ukrainian government, in their banking system, in their economy more generally, are actually genuine, not ideal. <laughs> Blunders were made, as he put it. But generally speaking, they're heading in the right direction. And the current government, as Matteo points out, has a vested interest now into keep that, keeping those reforms genuine and sustainable because they ultimately want to join the EU. Yeah, there's a, it's um, very much carrot and stick, isn't it? And uh, I was impressed at the extent to which the EBRD takes the long view and doesn't sort of 
basically link financial aid to uh, immaculate behavior on the, on the part of the recipient of the aid. I'm thinking particularly of places like Hungary and Serbia, which uh, do get quite a lot of e- EBRD DOSH, um, yet have not been actually particularly positive uh, in this conflict. They've, they've um, either sat on the fence or leaned well over the fence towards uh, Moscow, but that hasn't caused the money to dry up. I think the argument is, okay, you know, they're on a long road towards uh, membership of the EU. Well, Hungary's already in it, but in the case of Serbia, uh, they want to join the EU. And um, rough treatment by saying, okay, unless you behave yourselves, uh, you're not getting any more money, is probably not the way to go. It may uh, seem um, a little kind of soft-hearted from our perspective, but probably in the wrong long term, uh, the bank knows what it's doing, as it's proved in Ukraine, and that is the right approach. Yeah, I think we'll we'll be looking back as a historians, Patrick, in 20 or 30 years' time and, and saying, you know, some good did come out of this war for Ukraine. It, it speeded up a process. It may be it was a road it was going down anyway, but it speeded up that process into bringing it into the, you know, into, into the fraternity of Western nations. And, you know, you and I both believe, I think, and we're not ideologues by any stretch of the imagination, but we both believe that the Ukrainian people, the majority of the Ukrainian people, apart from the diehards who want to be attached to Russia, will be better off as a result of that well on that positive note we'll finish there do join us on friday for an update on news our analysis of it and answers to the many questions we've been getting from our listeners goodbye goodbye